0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network, and we are talking today with Stephen P. Brown. He is the author of Alabama Justice, The Cases and Faces That Changed a Nation. He is a professor of political science at Auburn University, and this is his third book. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Ian, for having me here.
0: I really appreciate it. So this is a book about famous cases that come to us from Alabama, and I knew of basically all of these cases. Some of them I have much more familiarity with than others, as well as all lawyers know most of these cases. Right. Uh, But I'd never really thought about the fact so many of them come from Alabama, and of course that's what your book reminds us of. Additionally, and we'll talk about this later, you uh, discuss several notable judges that hail from Alabama. and so. What is the purpose of collecting these famous cases that have been discussed in many other venues, but what's the purpose of collecting them in relation to Alabama?
1: So that's a great question, Ian. Um, When I came down to Auburn, Auburn University, which is in Auburn, Alabama, for my my first teaching job um, here, I was in my constitutional law classes. I teach four different constitutional law classes to undergraduates here at Auburn. And I remember as I would, we'd be talking about these cases, like you're saying, all landmark cases, uh, I would introduce them by saying, well, here's another great case from Alabama. And uh, just kind of to create that local angle for them. And it really hit me after a while, man, I just keep saying this. This is another landmark case. Here's another one from Alabama. And it just really surprised me. So, So back then, that was 1998 when I first came to Auburn. Uh, I thought, man, I just, I got to put all these together. I think this would be interesting for people in Alabama and elsewhere to know of the variety of cases that have come from this state and uh, basically had the idea, pitched it to a publisher. And uh, at the time they said, oh, that's kind of interesting, but maybe not right now. And then you fast forward forward 20 years to uh, 2019 when Alabama has its bicentennial of statehood. And uh, that then seemed to be a time, an appropriate time to bring this out again. And uh, it was uh, something that coincided with a statewide uh, mobile exhibit that I created along with the Alabama Historical um, uh, Association, the Alabama Bicentennial Commission, to take uh, a, a mobile display throughout the state to help Alabamians learn more about these cases and faces of these great uh, of these great Supreme Court cases. So I, I am sure that there are probably other states that could do the same thing, you know, great cases from California or great cases from Colorado or something. Uh, but um, I was just surprised. I mean, it's not just all race based cases either, like people might think. I was just surprised at the breadth. And there's probably you know, another dozen I could have thrown in here that are pretty close to landmark status that came from here. So, anyway, it's just, just kind of a, a thing that uh, came together because I live here and because of the, the bicentennial of Alabama statehood.
0: Is that exhibit you referred to still on display anywhere?
1: So, it is. As a matter of fact, it toured for uh, two and a half years. And of course, COVID affected that a little bit, but it's now on permanent display at the uh, state judicial building where Alabama Supreme Court sits.
0: So, it's uh, available for the members of the public to access as well. That's right. Yep. So, let me press you on this a little more. Is there any larger meaning other than simply coincidental occurrences? As you mentioned, a lot of these are civil rights related cases from the mid 20th century, um, and that's understandable. But nevertheless, is there something that's unique about Alabamians or Alabama and its location geographically or politically that in some way can explain why these cases come? Or is it uh, come to the court? Uh, or is it simply that? it's just a coincidence.
1: Well, that's a great question. And I, I don't know the answer. Um, I have, I have approached some of Hugo Black's, Justice Hugo Black's, uh, law clerks. And I asked them, I said, uh, you know, did, 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 did Justice Black ever ask you to kind of keep an eye out for cases from Alabama? And the the few that are still alive that I had a chance to speak with, they said no. That was never that was never his direction to us. Uh, I do think that it coincides, quite frankly, not only with the civil rights movement, but also with well trained attorneys and and the timing of a of a Supreme Court bench, the Warren Court. There's maybe a little bit more minimal to some of the claims that these individuals were bringing relative to freedom of association or uh, racial uh, gerrymandering, different things like that. So a different time frame, uh, a different uh, bunch of justice on the bench, maybe there wouldn't be, you know, any of these cases, but uh, the timing, well, let me back up here. The other thing that's interesting is virtually none of these um, were unique to Alabama. So when you have uh, discrimination in, in, uh, public accommodations like you have with the cats back versus McClung that's going on all over you know all over the south when you have um, you know the, the uh, strict um, liability for libel that was in virtually every state of the Union prior to New York Times versus Sullivan uh, freedom association that was something that was infringed upon virtually everywhere not just in the south so I think it's interesting and I, I really don't have an answer why the Particular plaintiffs, the particular attorneys, and then the timing of having the Warren Court uh, justices all there together—how all that came together—and and maybe it is just a coincidence that they happen to come from Alabama.
0: Sure, and of course, as we should note, most of these cases—I'm—I'm I'm looking at the list of them now. A good portion of them, and I, I'm trying to do a tally in my head as I'm talking. But basically, uh, most of them are from the mid 1960s. That's right. They're, Few from the late 50s, a Scottsboro case, of course, from the 30s. Right. Um, So, as uh, definitely the Warren Court's uh, engagement, so to speak, with the civil rights movement as a phenomenon or a political movement is no doubt a, a good, goes a good long way to explaining this. I'm curious if, as many civil rights cases or many Supreme Court cases, even beyond civil rights, they are designed to be test cases. I wonder if Alabama was perhaps appealing to the NAACP and other groups or other litigants, uh, for as being ripe for a test case. Um, don't know the answer to that. That's merely just armchair speculation.
1: Well, you know, the, the, uh, decision, uh, relative to NAACP versus, versus Alabama, excuse me, <clears throat> the Freedom of Association case that the court declared in 1958. That was uh, almost uh, an existential uh, case brought by the NAACP because the state of Alabama uh, basically said, you know, we've got th- these protests that have occurred after, or as a result of the Montgomery bus bus boycott after Rosa Parks' arrest. We have the, uh, the situation up at the University of Alabama with authoring Lucy, who, after she was admitted, but then when they found out she's African-American, they they refused to admit her. The NAACP filed a lawsuit uh, forcing her in, and that resulted in three or four days of, of protest up there. State officials at that time said, this is crazy, and it looks terrible for us, and the, the common denominator between Rosa Parks and authoring and Lucy, obviously, is the NAACP. And so when they went ahead and came after the NAACP, and basically uh, between uh, the, the legal action and the and efforts of the judge that sat on that case to basically say you can't operate in the state of Alabama any longer because you don't qualify. You've not provided um, all the rep- the typical reporting requirements, nor have you provided the membership list that the judge asked for. Uh, that led, of course, to the that case going to the spring court. But uh, it was 10 years between the court rebanding uh, the case back, between different things went back and forth. It wasn't until um, 1964, basically, uh, when the NAACP was able to operate again in Alabama. And at that time, NAACP officials said that was one of the most effective things any southern state did, was basically uh, telling us we couldn't operate and, and uh, you know requiring these membership lists and things like that. So in that sense, uh, it was almost imperative for the NAACP to bring that particular case because they, they simply were not allowed to do anything uh, otherwise.
0: Did any other states, to your knowledge, emulate the, uh, the Alabama model? Uh, Georgia, in that regard,
1: yeah, Georgia did. I know Georgia did. I think there's a few okay. others did as well. You had different government leaders throughout the Deep South. They would uh, meet. They would compare notes on what is working relative to the the protests and what's happening. You know, with your boycotts and what's happening with uh, segregation, desegregation, different things like that. So they would compare notes, and the NWCP was very, very careful and cautious about how to approach these, simply because it was it was very difficult for them.
0: So you cover quite a few interesting cases. What I'd like to do is put you on the spot and have you pick one of the cases, and then I'll pick one of the cases that I'd like to discuss. And if you pick the one I'm thinking of, then I'll <laughs> think of something else. But what would you? Uh, what do you think is one of the most notable cases that uh, you'd really like to discuss that you cover in the book?
1: Well, I wanna, oh, again, I, I like all of them, obviously, but the one that I think is most uh, surprising to people, uh, and it, it, for lots of different reasons, not only how it came about, but the 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 litigation itself and then what happened to the Supreme Court is Frontiero versus Richardson, uh, the uh, case dealing with with uh, women's rights. Uh, there you have Sharon Frontiero, who's a lieutenant stationed uh, over at the Air Force Base there in Montgomery, who uh, her husband has separated from the Navy. He's going to go back to school. And she goes in during the Vietnam era and says, can I go ahead and get this additional Uh, housing allowance and benefits because my husband's no longer employed and he's going to be a full-time student. A request that typically would always have been allowed had she been male and uh, and the, the spouse, the wife, you know, was leaving the workforce to have a child or go back to school or something like that. And she's denied. And a very, very shy, retiring young woman, and uh, she just says, that's, that's crazy. Why in the world would I be automatically denied this request when a man who would make the exact same uh, request would go ahead and, and have it granted? And so she uh, is able to um, link up with a young lawyer named Joe Levin, uh, who later, a year or two later, go on to help found the Southern Poverty Law Center. But a Montgomery lawyer, jo- Joe Levin, and uh, basically they take this thing all the way to the Supreme Court. What happens, which I think is so interesting here, and I talk about in the book a little bit, is that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who at that time is the head of the ACLU Women's Rights Project, gets wind of this, and uh, she and Levin uh, go ahead and they trade correspondence. I've got several of the letters that they traded, and uh, she says we would love to help, and he's like, oh, we'd love to have her help. And then eventually, in, in one letter, Ruth Bader Ginsburg says, "Wouldn't it be great if uh, you know because of of the." the uh, type of cases I've been involved with, the type of things that the women's rights project has stood for if if I got to argue this case for the Supreme Court, this landmark uh, gender discrimination case and let a female attorney argue it and Joe Levin responds, well not, not really. I don't think that'd be, be that great and you have this little dispute between the two of them and he eventually agrees to grant uh, 10 minutes of his time at oral argument to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And when you listen to that, it's fascinating because she lays out basically an argument for strict scrutiny for gender discrimination. And Joe Levin is looking more for what would later become intermediate scrutiny. Um, but the justices don't interrupt her at all, uh, which is very unusual for 10 minutes. They don't ask a single question of her. And that's her very first oral argument. And uh, again, as we all know, this uh, later is, is the court rules upon it and goes ahead and, and uh, says this federal uh, military policy on, on how uh, benefits and different things are granted on a, on a gender basis is unconstitutional. But that's the first time that a federal policy, a federal law had been struck down on the basis of gender. And so anyway, just the, the background issues and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's involvement and and then Sharon Frontiero, her her efforts here. Right? I just had a chance to talk to her, Sharon Frontiero, just a couple of months ago. And anyway, she's just a fascinating person, and uh, she just says, "I just no hero, but man, it's just so wrong that I was denied this that I really, I really wanted to do something about it." So, anyway, that's one of them that I really think is interesting.
0: Does Frontiero uh, still maintain a public connection to the case? Does she go around and talk about it publicly, or?
1: So super interesting. Uh, she said that she had not actually met Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She didn't go to D.C. for the oral argument. She had not actually met Ruth Bader Ginsburg until the, the late 1990s, if I'm not mistaken. Is I believe that's what she said. And so when people ask her about it, she will she will respond. But she's. You know, she's like anybody else would have done the same thing in my position, and she has a whole other life now that she's she's doing. And she's just a wonderful person. So she she claims the mantle, I guess, that's kind of been thrust upon her, but she doesn't make a big deal out of it. She's just a wonderful person and very down to earth. And uh, again, her her thing is anybody else would have done the same thing had they been in her shoes.
0: And we should note also the the, the way the court over time has treated gender uh, in terms of a. Uh, Um, equal protection argument, Uh, the court's uh, kind of been back and forth on gender in regard to what degree of uh, protection it will get and what degree. uh, Famously, of course, the court has developed this scheme of what they call scrutinizing levels, um, which are essentially uh, not always working out as cleanly as the theory suggests, but basically... It's a uh, it's a, a tiered approach to certain kinds of rights claims and um, things like um, uh, First Amendment free speech claims or religion claims. These get a uh, great degree of protection. So to do claims called uh, fundamental rights like right. abortion, um, immigration, uh, excuse me, uh, alien status, etc. But then there's equal protection claims for what are called protected classes. And um Certainly, uh, race, alienage, these have been extensively protected, and the court's very uh, protective of them, meaning they're not deferential to the government. Right. The government typically loses, but not always. And then for things like the Commerce Clause and regulations uh, on economics, et cetera, the government's uh, deferred to by the court in many respects. And the, uh, the government's kind of given a pass. The court always wins uh, or usually does. And then there's this middle tier that's not occupied by much other than, or at least for a long time, was occupied by gender. That's right. I guess in in some ways, though, the court has moved on to protecting gender and sex, um, and these are loaded terms, uh, both legally and politically, but – basically giving a bit more protection than they did even during the Frontiero era.
1: But they did. You're exactly right. And um, by that, I mean the VMI case that Justice Ginsburg actually authored that, uh, the case that came out of uh, the U.S. versus Virginia, the VMI case, um, she noted there's there's a difference. It's not strict scrutiny, but, uh, but uh, gender discrimination is not where it was when it emerged uh, there in the nineteen seventies from the Craig v. Boren case, nineteen seventy six, it's a it's a, a little bit closer, it's a it's a notch too higher towards strict scrutiny. Uh, but that that whole scheme, like you talked about, it is interesting because under the Fourteenth Amendment um is discrimination, 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 or as the court seems to uh, acknowledge, some discrimination is worse than others. So race, you can almost never, ever justify a racial distinction. Uh, Age, maybe, you know, maybe uh, younger people shouldn't be able to enter into contracts. Maybe older people ought to, you know, in different states have to take uh, their driver's exam more often, things like that. Um, Gender, maybe you, you can... Um, acknowledge or accept some distinction on the basis of gender. Maybe you can't. So it, it is interesting because you have some justices that have said, this is just a mess. We've just made hash of the 14th Amendment's equal protection clause when we stipulate that some great right, some uh, discrimination is worse than others. So it is kind of fascinating.
0: So that was your pick. Here's mine. It's from Chapter 8. It's Katzenbach versus McClung. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, titled Ollie's Barbecue. Yeah. And I found – I learned a lot about the background of this case because I knew of the holding, but I really didn't know much about the details of the case. And I was fascinated by how uh, Mr. McClung and his family were brought into this uh, seemingly somewhat reluctantly as, yeah. um, as a test case. And so it doesn't necessarily fit all the stereotypes of the civil rights era. Uh, you want to explain this case?
1: Yeah. Well, and, and what you said just there a second ago is exactly right. I mean, he, uh, 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 Ollie McClung, you know, used to talk about how his big thing was bibles and barbecue that uh, he would go ahead and sell the barbecue only only white patrons could sit in his um restaurant, but uh African Americans you know that he'd still serve them but have the outside window um, he would preach at black churches uh he would he did, went ahead as a kind of a a lay preacher would do different things his um, kitchen help, and I don't think they were all African American a lot of them were. But uh, they later talked about when the restaurant closed in the early 2000s, that he would provide the food that they would take to civil rights rallies. And uh, uh, Time Magazine had an article about the time that this uh, case started go to the Supreme Court and asked him, you know, why are you doing all this? He said, I asked my employees. And I, I still, this still seems kind of weird to me, but he said, I don't pay them uh, a salary. Everything they get is a percentage of sales. And so I went and talked to my employees and said, if we have to... Uh, desegregate, then um, if we need to allow in African American patrons, then there's going to be a whole lot of white people who will not be coming, and that'll be less money for all of us. And according to the Time Magazine article, he, that uh, they, that all the, everybody, the entire uh, white and black workforce of his said, no, let's just keep doing like we're doing so we can have more money that comes in. So it'd be interesting to get some corroboration on that. But I thought that was that was interesting that came out of that Time magazine. Um, at any rate, yeah. So uh, he basically, his argument was how can Congress under the uh, Civil Rights Act uh, be able to uh, go ahead and bring about this type of regulation when there's no there's no uh, impact on the commerce clause at all there's simply no connection between my little restaurant it's in a southern birmingham neighborhood it's far away from the interstate it's not anywhere close to the airport or to the to the train anything like that Uh, we don't even advertise he said there's nothing it's just people who've been coming forever they recommend us to our friends and and that's that's who we have so there's simply no connection to the to the commerce clause and that was the Civil Rights Act. That was one of the stipulations of that law Is there's a, a direct impact on the, the Commerce Clause, and Congress could go ahead and regulate it. Justice Black's wife actually even uh, there's a quote in the book where where she later says, "You know, I couldn't believe that Hugo would take on this case." She said, "I, I ate there all the time. I know everybody in that restaurant, and there's there's nobody from out of town." So, anyways, it's kind of an interesting case in that sense, but. Uh, but the court basically argued here, where does, where does your, your meat come from? Where, where do you get your napkins? Where do you pick up the, the stuff that goes into the barbecue sauce? All of that uh, is, travels in interstate commerce. So to say that just because your location, people aren't coming off the interstate and flying in and traveling to and from it, uh, just because that doesn't happen doesn't mean there isn't still a good bit of interstate commerce going on that affects how you get your, your supplies and your meat and different things like that.
0: And so this is um, – uh, McClung himself is – is he's chosen by the Restaurant Association. That's right. Um, this is it, – it's designed as a test case to – on the one hand, uh, do we have any sense for what the overall – were there any additional objectives of the Restaurant Association other than simply their concern with the local restaurants being – Uh, required to serve African-Americans as they did um, white Americans. Uh, Was there any larger philosophical perspective in this in regard to, say, the Commerce Clause and the theories about what government can and cannot regulate? You know, for example, the reason I ask ask this is, for example, there are some famous uh, votes against the Civil Rights Act Mm -hmm. um, using the rubric of the Commerce Clause as simply not being um, uh, commiserate with the purposes of the Commerce Clause and uh, not necessarily racist motives, although that may have been present as well. But nevertheless, there are these larger philosophical concerns that we've seen later um, in the famous uh, court cases from the 1990s um, in regard to the Gun-Free School Zones Act right. and um, and also the uh, 2012 right. case with the uh, Sibelius case on um, whether the Commerce Clause could justify the individual right. mandate. And so were there any of these concerns present or was this simply basically what it looks like, which is the Restaurant Association doesn't want to have to serve African-Americans and that's yeah. it?
1: No, I think that was, I, th- I think that was it. And I could be wrong, but it's that, you know, the Birmingham Restaurant Association. So again, Birmingham is a good sized city and it was then as well. But I think their interests were pretty narrow. I don't think they were looking to, um, you know, do something to, you um, uh, uh, Fence in congressional power. I don't think they wanted the court to make a statement that said Congress, uh, that Congress's commerce power, that's has just been expanded greatly since the 30s, ought to be reined in. I don't think they, that was on their mind at all. I think it was uh, who's who's Congress to go ahead and tell us what to do on our little in our little restaurants and things like that. Whether you know, with the 14th Amendment. Looking at uh, in the public accommodations laws and different things like that, if, if uh, we're required to serve individuals under this uh, under public accommodations of 14th Amendment, uh, that's one thing, but again, the the court's previous uh, precedents in the 14th Amendment had basically said if there's no state action, there, then, then you know what can you do, and so that's why Congress avoided the Fourteenth Amendment and that state action argument, and instead tied the civil rights uh, law to the Commerce Clause, something that was squarely within its authority uh, under Article One, but also Supreme Court precedent. And so I think the court—I th- I mean, I think the restaurant association simply was going kind of a, more of a mentality of the Fourteenth Amendment. There's no state action; we're private individuals. We should be able to choose who we uh, can serve and who we cannot serve. And, and having McClung. There again, kind of a, re- a reluctant, um, uh, you know, litigant, but someone who clearly wasn't this rabid uh, racist. You know that maybe people thought would be the type of people that would challenge this type of law. I think they thought he saw him as a as a favorable participant in the litigation for that reason.
0: And that's the level of detail that's provided for each of these cases. It's really uh, giving life to them uh, and explaining how the litigants sometimes weren't. Uh, always uh, cartoon cutouts for uh, the interests that they might have been uh, representing or used to represent. That's right. So your book, in addition, it is primarily uh, covering these cases, but also you discuss three notable jurists that come from Alabama, John McKinley, John Archibald Campbell, and one that we've uh, referred to already today and who is very well known from the 20th century, Hugo Black, so uh, which of these uh, gentlemen would you like to uh, briefly discuss?
1: Well, I, I actually, my previous book was about John McKinley, and uh, I, I was surprised. I mean, in graduate school, of course, when you're studying Supreme Court, Supreme Court history and litigation, you, you learn a lot about a lot of, of justices. And I just had never heard his name before. I couldn't believe that I came down to Alabama, and that's the first time I'd heard of, of John McKinley. Uh, sat on the bench from 1837 to 1852. Um, it, was, it was a mover and shaker in early Alabama politics. Andrew Jackson called him the most prominent man in Alabama. And I'm like, how in the world could he be so prominent? But he just, no one's ever heard of him. And so that, that's kind of a fascinating story. About the, the worst thing that could have happened to him was to have been appointed to the Supreme Court, in large part because of the court's uh, circuit riding duties back in that time frame. Um, Chief Justice, you know, they they sit in D.C. for just a couple of months for their term in D.C., and then they'd go off on circuit. Chief Justice Taney uh, had Maryland and Delaware in his circuit. You know, I don't know how long it took him to listen to cases there, maybe a couple of months. Um, John McKinley had Louisiana and Arkansas, Alabama and Mississippi. And uh, all those four states were within the top 10 largest states at that time. And in a report to Congress, he said, I, I, I do about 10,000 miles a year uh, on my circuit duties, and I'm gone. Basically, I, I get back from the term in D.C., say hey to the wife and kids, and then I'm gone. And I'm gone for you know several months. And So he co- he complained a lot about the size of his circuit. He complained about... Uh, The circuit schedule had been set up by Congress, and that's primarily what he was known for, I think, as someone who complained a lot. But I I was able, in the previous book, was able to, because of technology, you have all these uh, digitized newspapers from the 1800s now that are available that previous scholars did not have access to. And was able to you know, see that his reputation at the time was a good bit uh, more favorable than maybe it became after he left the bench. And uh, I think that his, his huge circuit, his original Ninth Circuit, by the way, he was the first, uh, the first, per, the first Ninth Justice. So prior to that, you'd had six Justices, then seven, then, then went up to nine, and then ten for a while, then back to nine, as you know. But anyway, he was the first Ninth Justice and the first one to sit on that original Ninth Circuit. And I think because of the the concerns, the way that it eventually broke his health, Congress started to pay a lot more attention to the concerns and and uh, complaints of justices at circuit, and eventually reduced those, and then and then removed them finally. So I I think John McKinley is fascinating. Uh, John Arthur Campbell is fascinating because as you know, he he was supposed to be the the the, uh, the this he was a child he was a child prodigy, but he was supposed to be this great intellect on the Supreme Court, who's – Uh, promise was unfulfilled when he left uh, the bench when Alabama seceded. And then, of course, Hugo Black's huge, huge impact on the First Amendment, on the doctrine of incorporation. Uh, And sadly, you said most people know about Hugo Black, but in my experience, even here in Alabama, especially among young people, they have no clue about uh, Black. So I I think all three of these Justices uh, made uh, you know, interesting and important contributions in their own way. Uh, Campbell's coming primarily after he left the bench and went back into private practice and in arguing before the Supreme Court, for example. But
0: I thought it was notable. Uh, it's really important how McKinley is just a representative figure for the difficulties of circuit uh, riding. Right. It really – Took a toll. Uh, are, these are not pay. You know, these aren't even rutted roads. In some instances, they're just going through <laughs> fields, and yeah. um, it really took a health uh, toll on the health of several justices and arguably killed some of them early
1: oh yeah they did and it was on their own dime for the, what that's worth the congress had a travel allowance justices did not during this period so where, wherever they went if you're again chief justice Tawney scooting through two tiny states not a big deal but when you're john mckinley it's going to take a hit uh because you're paying all of all of your travel and lodging all on your own dime
0: arguably really true patriots who serve under those conditions yep Uh, Also notable to me, I had never heard of this before, and I wonder if anybody else – any other justice or any other lawyer – has been the subject of the entire Supreme Court petitioning the president to please nominate them. And that's what that was John Campbell. Yep. Apparently, uh, as you know, this really stuck out to me. I have you ever heard of that for any other justice or any other nominee?
1: I've never, but there's two there's two parts to that. The the latter part is that was just the quality of of reputation that John Archibald Campbell had. I mean he was he'd already argued for the Supreme Court, one of the most prominent attorneys at the time. But the the, the first part of that is that you had a kind of a Merrick Garland situation you'd had with the death of John McKinley. And then you have the president nominate several people that are shot down by the Senate. And then you have the Senate just wait because there's an upcoming election. And the idea is we'll wait till till our president gets in there and uh, and we'll see what happens. And, uh, And so the justices, I think, trying to to get some help, and and seeing this political turmoil that's going on, said, "Listen, here's a guy we can work with who might be acceptable to both parties," and so yeah, I I found that fascinating too.
0: Also, what's notable, um, one aspect of Hugo Black that if anybody discusses him, and this may really be uh, one. Example of how one person is, in fact, reflective of a norm at the time. Black, of course, had been uh, at some point member of the uh, Ku Klux Klan and uh, there had always been forever thereafter. And sometimes even today, if there's reference to him, there's criticism uh, of his membership. Uh, So can you give us a little bit of the background of his membership and how that may or may not have been indicative of other public officials or people who wanted to uh, make a reputation for themselves in state politics at the time?
1: So so you have – a couple of different ways to look at this, and, and maybe they're the same way. I don't know. You you do have uh, these individuals who joined the KKK were racist. It was a racist organization, anti-Black, anti-Jewish, uh, anti-Catholic as well. Uh, and these people reflected those values there's another view that says well you don't get anywhere in uh, southern politics without the help of the KKK if you don't at least identify with them and so this isn't excusing anybody that that joined them maybe they were racist maybe maybe they saw i've, I've got to be this or this way i've got to express these views in order to you know climb the the ladder of uh, of the to the political positions that I want, so whatever that is, it, th- that's that. But I'm not sure you have too many people to have who have an opportunity to to change publicly. Um, maybe you have governors and, and members of uh, the Senate and the House and things like that that had KKK support who who did things differently and voted a, a different way once they got into office. But never, I don't think anybody is publicly and consistently as Hugo Black did. I think one of the great things that uh, uh, Justice Charles M. Hughes did. Uh, when he was chief justice was to give to black very early on in his career a a, a segregation case a, a race-based case that he could go ahead and write majority opinion on it was almost as like as if he was telling black here's your opportunity you've told us you're different show us how and and you just don't get from you know 1937 38 whenever he' was appointed until 1971. Such a consistent effort on the part of a justice who had had that type of background to, to just tell people, uh, you know, the the Constitution means this, the Equal Protection Clause means this, this is what this means in terms of for African Americans, and very, very consistent. Um, so anyway, I just think it's a great story. So again, people can can go back to that uh, Senate election, and and you know look at the fact he was a member of the KKK. But I, I think it's more helpful to look at what he did and his his persuasive power on the bench and his consistency on the bench, and how that not only benefited African Americans but all of us.
0: All of these are really engaging stories about the cases and the judges. The book is entitled Alabama Justice, The Cases and Faces That Changed a Nation. And we've been joined today by its author, Stephen P. Brown. Steve, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you, Ian. I really appreciate it.